0: Hello, honeys. Welcome to episode two in our spooky month special. Today, we are going to be talking about Artemisia Gentileschi's version of Judith beheading Holofernes, and actually, she titles it Judith slaying Holofernes. The version we're going to be discussing is completed in 1621. But before we get to all that, I thought it should be noted uh, at the top of the episode here that we will be discussing briefly a sexual assault that the artist herself endured. So I strongly recommend that if that is going to be upsetting to you that you proceed with caution. Wanted to give everyone fair notice and with that said, here we go. Now I know what you're thinking. Another painting. And I promise that we will move on. We will get to see other types of works on this podcast. But given that it's a spooky month special, I thought I would give myself the exception and the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite art history pieces of all time. This one has a special place in my heart because it was one of the first paintings that I well, works of art at all that I ever learned about that could be considered feminist or reclamatory in some way. So it was very exciting to me at the time. And the crux of this episode is a controversy that surrounds her 1621 version of Judith Slang Holofernes. And it is essentially the age-old question of how much one's biography affects or forms their art. So the long-standing, ever-evolving, and continuously more thorny question of separating the artist from the artwork. The question in this specific case is whether or not we should give more or less credit to her experience Um, having been sexually assaulted as an inspiration for her specific take, as groundbreaking as it was, on the story of Judith. We're going to be talking about how much weight is attributed to other factors versus to that one, and how they could be better balanced to do a better job of giving Ganelleschi her credit as an artist, as well as the the story it's due for female empowerment undertones. Moving right along, the best place to start probably is with the main characters, so to speak, in this story. There is the artist herself, Artemisia Ganeleski, born in 1593 and died in 1652. She became the foremost female Italian painter of her day, thanks to her extraordinary personality and her skill. She was a student of Caravaggio, another very famous name at one point, and reinterpreted his style in her own way with some of her father's influence. And he was a mannerist, AKA a very small faction of a late Renaissance style. So she had this, unique blend that drew a lot of attention to her work on top of her technical capabilities. She worked throughout Rome, Florence, Naples, London, several other art centers. As I mentioned, she was a daughter and student of the successful painter Orazio Ganielski, and this allowed her a certain level of access to artistic circles that may not have otherwise been possible. Probably the most obvious example, Caravaggio himself. She was really respected for her skill and her self-assurance. She became the first woman member of the Florentine Academia del Design, in fact. The next character we have to talk about is, unfortunately, the bummer character, Agostino Tassi. He lived from 1578 till 1644. He was a mentor of Gunnileski and he would be largely lost to history except for that position and the subsequent famous rape trial against him. Then of course, there is the painting's characters themselves. There's Judith, the maid, and Holofernes, an Assyrian king's general. So a quick summary of this famous sexual assault, because obviously it's still quite well known and and still a factor in these debates. If this is going to be upsetting to you, I suggest you stop listening right about here and I will do my best to mark in the show notes where you can continue to listen from. Unfortunately, it happened to her the way that it happened to many of us. She was in her studio. Uh, Unfortunately, her chaperone, and there's some debate on whether she didn't, this chaperone, I mean, did not show up on purpose or whether there was just some miscommunication. But in any case, there was no chaperone around, and Tassie decided to take advantage of that fact. Then, as Dr. Camera describes in a Khan Academy video about this whole situation, Tassi was then expected to marry her according to the social demands of the day. However, he failed to do so. He denied it. And her father then had no other choice but to seek some sort of recourse in court. Artemisia describes during that, that court case her struggles against Tassie, her attempt to even attack him with a knife to fight him off. And Dr. Kemmer even points out that the first version of Judith slaying Holofernes from 1611, which is less bloody and striking, dates to this difficult period in the artist's life though it is unclear if that is the first rendition of this story that she ever created, ever. So even though there is quite a bit of information out there about how brutal this trial was, how grueling some of the nasty moves that Tassie pulled against her were, but I don't really want to focus on that brutality, that we're not really here for, you know, soaking in a woman's pain. So, swiftly moving on. In the words of Hannah Criswell, a fellow art historian, in her dissertation essay, No Less, quote, one month after the trial ended, on November 29, 1612, Artemisia married Pietro Antonio de Vincenzo Statiesi, a family friend and Florentine artist." They moved to Florence soon after, where Artemisia was exposed to fine fashion and other inspirations that furthered her art career. If you were skipping for content, here is a good place to come back in, uh, because I'm about to make a quick clarification that I should have earlier. I mentioned Artemisia Gentileschi's father, Orazio Gentileschi, was also an artist. However, pretty much any time I say Gentileschi in this episode, I am referring to Artemisia as she is the artist in question here. Just wanted to be extra clear about that. Forgive the uh, condescension. <laughs> all right, having laid all of the biographical background out, it's of course time to look at the story of Judith beheading Holofernes. What is it? So we can understand why so many have drawn parallels between this story and Gonaleski's own life. The story itself is of a Jewish heroine, Judith, living during the period of the Second Temple according to belief, this is when the Jewish community had returned from the Babylonian captivity and reestablished temple worship in Jerusalem. So Judith's entire tale occurs in a fictitious Israelite town called Bethulia. And Judith essentially uses a seduce and inebriate kind of ruse that's very atypical of biblical stories and even more atypical for other reasons that we'll get into. But the plot essentially goes as camera states, quote, She quaffed her hair, donned her finest garments, and entered the enemy camp under the pretense of bringing Holofern's information that would ensure his victory. Struck by her beauty, he invited her to dine, planning later to seduce her, end quote. But alas... He got too drunk, and he passed out. And at that point, Judith snuck her maid into their into the tent that that Holofernes had brought her back to, because you know, he was, he had plans. <laughs> they attack and behead Holofernes with his own sword and escape with his head back to the town of Bethulia uh, as a, as a sort of trophy. And this freaks out the Assyrians enough. To save her people from those invading armies. So, Judith is this incredibly unique heroine in terms of having both piety, which would have been considered a womanly, and st- like strong physical strength traits, which would have been considered conversely very masculine, manly. So, this is a great narrative. And it's in this time for artists who want to explore gender identity or gendered power dynamics. There is also a role reversal against heteronormative church uh, standards going on in this story. In older, longer versions of scripture, Judith, a woman, teaches men to pray, to use strategy, and so on. And so it's very standout in her capabilities as a a person, as a leader, but especially because she's a woman. Finally, Judith is unusual from most biblical heroines in that she lives on after committing a murder instead of being, quote-unquote, cleansed by death. There's an unusual acceptance of her actions, a righteousness about them that is not often given to any biblical character, much less a woman one. One very interesting thing about that story of Judith is that it is ubiquitous throughout art history. You can find a representation of it in any, just about any style, but certainly from any century at all. Yet these evolutions of of depictions of Judith are often tied to the societal values and or the views, especially of women, at that time. So in the Middle Ages, for example, she was representative of a small but strong population able to overpower a tyrant, which would have been in parallel to the kingdoms and ruling systems going on at the time that obviously the lowest classes, the serfs especially, would not have been happy with. Then we move out of the Middle Ages and into the true pre-Renaissance, where the ideas are just starting to pick up steam, but there's not enough of a cohesive recognition of change enough to call it the Renaissance just yet. One of my fellow art historians, Genevieve Keller, writes, quote, Women during this time were expected to be either sinless and pure, like the Virgin Mary, or immoral and sexually promiscuous like Eve. So, virgin whore sort of dynamic. Uh, sorry, that was a self-insert. Getting back to the quote, women were not considered to be complex beings, end quote. So Judith's character in this time period was similarly restricted in that she could only reach a certain level of dimensionality in the pre-Renaissance. In the late Renaissance though, things start to switch up a little bit. This would be about 1550 to about 1650. In the South, so closer to Italy, Spain, she becomes more aggressive and seductive. For example, there are lots of slits in her skirts. She's very jewel-laden. In the north, however, she becomes more nymph-like in her seductivity. So she's much more frequently depicted nude, but also as, uh, as very willowy, very delicate. In either region of Europe, however, her leadership role, her intelligence, her uh, craftiness is very underplayed. It's important not only to consider the general social contexts in which different versions of Judith are produced, but also the spiritual ones. The Renaissance was not only a change of, of, you know, culture, but of spirituality as well. It was during this time that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door very famously. So that meant that there were changes going on in the representation of even biblical stories because biblical stories themselves were under re-examination to reinterpret them under a more contemporary you know for that day (laughs) understanding so wade explains it as quote the version of the judith story that early modern germans including luther knew and translated is not the Septuagint but the vulgate which is a later version the latter is not only much shorter but makes judith much less eloquent than in the Septuagint, where it is clear that her tongue is her sword in the vulgate and therefore in luther's translation her weapon is her seductive beauty, working on holoferns through his gaze, End quote. So in every instance, whether someone was Protestant or not, this shift away from Judith as a, a sort of female David equivalent to a femme fatale seductress Definitely changes the standard for all future representations of, of that character, in the Baroque era. So, just before Ganelleschi and far beyond, about 1600 to about 1750, the story of Judith beheading Holofernes becomes something of a opportunity to explore gore and the macabre. The the abject of the body the stuff that makes us uncomfortable because it it objectifies the body in a very depersonalizing dehumanizing way so in these versions judith almost always appears as a violent determined assassin and she doesn't evolve a ton from there she becomes something more of a femme fatale as you get closer to the 1800s. In the early 20th century, she circles back around to becoming associated with underdogs once again. Then she, as well as Artemisia Ganileschi, fade in cultural relevance until the hashtag MeToo movement in about 2017, where Artemisia's story, especially the rape trial, is... Uh, seized upon as an instance of sexual abuse within an arts industry, which was the main topic of the Me Too movement right then. Interestingly enough, Judith does show up in a couple of artworks by Gustav Klimt. Um, However, as Killer notes, she's reduced purely to her sexuality, She's topless, you can barely see Holofernes' head. Uh, However, this isn't too terribly surprising of Klimt. These views of women were very in line with the patriarchal ideas of Viennese women at the time. Uh, They were essentially seen as poor sweet little creatures just to be married off, so not terribly surprising that Klimt took this view in his artwork. Regardless of the era though, Judith has consistently been aligned with celibacy, beauty or youth or a combination of both, strength, righteousness, humility during victory, sadness at the the chore, the act of killing. Okay, so now we understand a little bit about the norms of the depictions of this story at the time. We can bring it back to Ganelleschi herself, her version, her ties to this subject. I want to start with the strictly professional ones. First of all, Artemisia Gentileschi just was a frequent flyer of Old Testament or Old Testament inspired heroines. She loved them. She painted them all the time, was, was her thing. And she even returned to this specific story multiple times, painting images of the moments before and the moments after the beheading event. So her interest was not solely in the moment of this, this violent penetration. Her interest is in the, the drama of the story, the finality of the action, the severity to with Judith takes her responsibility to protect her people seriously. Furthermore, two of her influential teachers, her father and Caravaggio, both made their own renditions, so it could have been either a professional nod to them or a a sort of standard of achievement for her. Dr. Camera, in a comparison of Caravaggio and Ganelleschi's versions, point to several specific modifications by Ganelleschi that, quote, heightened the intensity of the physical struggle the quantity of blood spilled, and the physical and psychological strength of Judith and her maidservant, Abra, end quote. So it's clear that Ganeleski is modeling her version after her teacher, but she's also trying to outdo him. Turning back to the personal, as I stated, her version has frequently been interpreted by art historians as well as just viewers at large to convey the artist's female rage both as a victim of sexual assault um, and or as a woman in a male-dominated field and there are some decently strong arguments for this that are worth covering. The strongest one probably is that Artemisia used herself as a model for Judith in both the 1611 and the 1621 versions the figure has often been said to embody female rage and or violent success. So to put her body forth as the body taking action that, that displays female rage definitely makes it plausible that there may have been some element of her own experiences, especially with sexual assault that were on her mind while she was working on this. Of course, the subject matter itself, the murder of an intruding violent man as, as a underlying plot could be seen as reclamatory or healing over her, her own sexual assault. And there are some very pointed differences in the majority of depictions versus her own. One that really stood out to me, especially the more I did research for this episode, is that her title includes the verb slaying, which evokes determined, specific violence, um, a bodily attack that's well-planned, doing away with a particular evil Whereas other titles generally use less evocative, more descriptive, like narrative sort of language. For example, Botticelli titled his 1470 version, The Return of Judith to Bethulia. Caravaggio titled his 1599 version, Judith Beheading Holofernes, which is still brutal, but less personal and more factual. And the... Depictions of the story have also tended to feature the crone and virgin dynamic, which is a version essentially of the whore and virgin dynamic between the maid and Judith, wherein one, typically the maid, is old, ugly, morally corrupt, and the other, typically Judith, is youthful, beautiful, pure in all senses. So she does not place one above the other in terms of beauty youth, wisdom, strength, and in so doing is not only breaking with the artistic norms of the day, just by having two equitable women, but also by having them working together in this sort of solidarity. Uh, This was just a really unusual sort of moment of, of female power speaking of unusual female power, the way that she builds Judith's body is also super important because she shows Judith as determined, as muscly, as truly stabbing through Holofernes' entire neck. So there's an unusual communication of female strength and her commitment to this task. It really emphasizes the physicality of her very adult body when the popular trend was instead to make the body of Judith appear very girlish and stringy. Typically, Judith's face reflects a sort of stress and sadness at her own action. Her hand is depicted as very limp as it stabs. But this Judith, Artemisia's Judith, is absolutely feels no regret about killing this guy. And in a sort of combination of those last two points, the f- bodies of Judith, the maid, and Holofernes are all roughly the same size, instead of Holofernes betrayed as very giantish and Judith much more like a tiny David. So this atypically allows Judith to be the star of her own story. It creates a a much more human interaction amongst the three characters. One more tidbit that doesn't necessarily have to do with um, the personal attribution of Ganeleski's life experiences to her rendition of this work, but one that I just simply enjoy is just the fact that Judith's boobs follow gravity. It sounds silly, and yet, so many male artists, up to and even at this time, did not, f- you know, have the fleshy parts of the body, specifically boobs, follow gravity. So it speaks to a maturity of Judith's form as well as her muscularity. And it also gives the painting a much higher sense of reality. But getting back on track, another reason that many art historians believe that this painting is connected to Artemisia Gentileschi's personal life is because of the use of the iconography of the Greek goddess Artemis in Judith's cameo bracelet. So not only does Artemisia's first name mean gift of Artemis, but, and quoting here, During the medieval era, Judith was considered the Old Testament prefiguration of the Virgin Mary and thus depicted chastely and piously. During the Renaissance, with this emphasis on reclaiming classical lore, both Judith and Mary were said to be prefigured in Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt. Judith therefore took on a newly active quality as a warrior, end quote. So there's a sort of female empowerment and, and personal empowerment, personal reference, going on in this this bracelet that gives the personal argument more strength. So clearly there are several reasons why an argument for Ganeleski's 1621 Judith being uh, a more personal version of the story exists. There's There's quite a bit of proof to that, sure. However, This is the portion I'd like to call the reality check, because as I mentioned, there were several other potential professional factors and there are even more that we haven't covered yet and other contextual factors. So here we go. The reality checks. First and foremost, the story of Judith beheading Holofernes is an incredibly popular story at this time especially across all sorts of mediums, plays, musical scores, all sorts of things focused on either the drama of the moment of the murder or the escape after the beheading. And these, these takes were popular throughout any type of art form at the end of the day. Evidence has actually led art historians to the general col- conclusion that the work was actually likely a commission for Casimo the second de Medici, the Grand Duke of Tuscany. To me, this makes a lot of sense because the Medici's were super wealthy and were well known for their vast and hungry collectorship of art. So it's even possible that Ganeleski did not choose this subject herself, but was simply paid to do a version of the story and just happened to choose this particular moment in it. Furthermore, the political allegories that are lost on us today would have been very clear to Artemisia's audiences. Katie White over at Art News writes that quote, Judith's killing of Holofernes could easily stand as a symbol of the avenging true church striking back against foes who had wronged it, end quote. Because the Catholic Church was emphasizing realness and boldness in its own legitimizing propaganda campaign against the rise of Protestantism. And to this effect, White notes, quote, while Martin Luther doubted the book of Judith's place in the canon, the Catholic Church seized upon it, end quote. So it was popular not only for the drama of the story, but also because of its religious connections to the moment in which She and all of her peers were living, and Ganelleschi, being Italian, likely would have been on board with this uh, campaign by the church at the time, to some degree. Her being Italian and based in Italy at this moment is also important because of the political tensions. The story represented tensions against both the Protestants and the Ottoman Turks, who were an active presence in the Venetian state, but weren't necessarily always received well. So the figure of Holofernes as an Assyrian general already being geographically associated with Islam, he comes to represent the Italian political enemies, the encroaching Turks. So the story of Judith in Ganeleski's time is... A, a way to sort of represent a fight against not only the Protestants but also the turks it's a it's a multi representative painting of all these different tensions. A lot of attention has been paid in analyses of this work to the dramatic and unusual spray of blood that that spews across the sheets and It's interesting because the blood actually may follow parabolic logic rather than serving to emphasize the violence. It may reference instead her friendship with Galileo, who proposed and proved such parabolic trajectories mathematically. And so it could have been actually a more attempt to be as true to nature as possible instead of as gory as possible. Finally... I think we really need to think hard about assigning this painting its greatness based on the terribleness of a crime committed by a man against a woman artist. I think it really brings up the question of tortured artist stereotypes because it implies that she would not have been able to create such a a groundbreaking and striking work without having had this, I'll be getting very negative, influence from a dude. It, I think it undermines some of what she was able to accomplish when you say that she only accomplished it, she only represented it and did it this way because of the... Horrible actions of a man. There's just something that reattributes some of the credit to him and his actions in so doing that I think is very unfair to her. And I think we really ought to actually move further away from the rape story in order to give Artemisia herself her due. And I'm willing to argue that point, but I think it is an important point to bring up. And it turns out I'm not the only one who thinks so. Chriswell writes in her dissertation that contemporary feminist theories or psychoanalytical analyses on the concepts and effects of rape, quote, approaches are valid, but they do not explore the cultural aspects behind the reactions and behaviors of individuals during the 17th century, end quote. So she too argues for a more holistic and socially conscious analysis of Ganelleschi's life that is inclusive of the standards of being a woman as well as being an artist in the 17th century. You know, she reminds us that because Artemisia lived then rather than now, using current perceptions of rape, rape culture, so on to analyze Ganelleschi's life, and especially her paintings, is not enough to to get to the the heart of the matter it doesn't tell the entire story keeler agrees saying quote, while it is significant to set gonoleski apart for her accomplishments as a female artist of her time she should not be critiqued separately from her male counterparts based solely on her gender also despite her frequent treatments of female heroines and sexual themes it is vital to not focus on Ganelleschi's sexuality as the only driving force for her art. Quote, and in a separate quote says, because it implies her rape is the driving force for her artwork, placing her sexuality as the main characteristic of her personality and sexualizing her artistic career. This takes away from her artistic achievements and alienates her from the rest of her field. End quote. And so all that said, that is the story of Artemisia Gentileschi and her 1621 version of Judith slaying Holofernes, her contribution to the evolution of Judith, and to, inadvertently, feminist art history. I hope you've enjoyed our detour into the gory here in honor of our spooky month special. Uh, If you have any thoughts about this specific issue, you know, how much should we credit the sexual assault uh, for an inspiration in some way, shape, or form uh, in her painting, would love to talk about that further, would love to hear your thoughts, would love to hear about any questions. Feel free to DM those to our social media account. That is on Instagram. We are also looking into expanding platforms of social medias. So keep an eye out for some new developments to come. I promise music is also coming. It is in the works. And I will be excited to have it when we have it and to put it on here once we have it. But in the meantime, have a wonderful, wonderful day, honey crowd. And I will see you in two weeks. This podcast was created, produced Written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugno. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.